from my swamp to yours, it's The Other Animals for Friday, November 5th, 2021, our 104th show. I'm Laurent Levy. Thanks for stopping by this week. Well, we have a we have a varied show. That's a word, varied, with a D on the end. Um, it's a little bit different, a little bit of a contrast from our single guest conversation that we had last week, which, which by the way, I hope you enjoyed as, as much as I did. Now, you may have heard about the uh, quietly historic legal news regarding the federal ruling that hippos, otherwise known as hippopotamuses, but we like to call them hippos, that they can legally be recognized now as people or uh, interested persons. That's the official legal designation. They, and that's, it's a done deal. And we're going to be talking with two attorneys from the Animal Legal Defense Fund, otherwise known as ALDF, who helped make that ruling a reality. I, I'm personally intrigued with this case because, um, and you're going to hear this from the ALDF, uh, their approach is very different from that from the Non-Human Rights Project, which, as you know, we've, we've had on several times. And each organization, they have their own really, I think it's remarkable, their own tactic, their own approach uh, towards getting to the same goal. And they, they approach it differently, but they want to get to the same place. And they're both I don't want to say they're both. They're both. They're both proving effective. Let's let's just say you're, you're going to want to check it out to see see the difference between the two. And we're also going to be continuing our our series with uh, Sentient Media's Matt Zampa about. Well, are you ready? Yes, there's a butcher shortage in the UK. Ah, dreadful Crimea River. Uh, Matt's also going to fill us in on the COP26 UN Climate Change Conference that actually just started this week, and uh, Sentient Media is covering that. And as if all that's not enough, uh, a bit later, Dr. Uh, Tom Picard, veterinarian uh, here out of Philadelphia from All Pets House Calls, has got some really good advice for keeping our pets safe during Thanksgiving, as well as a pretty uh, important warning about an old nemesis uh, that we've talked about before, but it's being marketed under a new name. And it's, it's our old friend that could be very lethal, particularly to our dogs. You're definitely going to want to hang around for that. But before we do all of that, let's catch up on a little Animals in the News. I just do one story here. I apologize in advance. This is a couple weeks old. It's not, it's not, it's not the newsiest news, but it's an important enough story that, that I, uh, it, it needs a little time here. So uh, it comes from the New York Times and it's uh, a couple weeks, like I said, it's a couple weeks uh, uh, old. And uh, it goes like this. I'm just going to read it right out. Surgeons in New York have successfully attached a kidney grown in a genetically altered pig to a human patient and found that the organ worked normally. A scientific breakthrough that one day may yield a vast new supply of organs for severely ill patients. Researchers have long sought to grow organs in pigs that are suitable for transplantation into humans. Technologies like cloning and genetic engineering have brought that vision closer to reality in recent years, but testing these experimental organs in humans has presented daunting ethical questions. Hmm. So surgeons at NYU Langone Health took an astonishing step. With the family's consent, they attached the pig kidney, I'm sorry, the pig's kidney to a brain dead patient who was sustained on a ventilator and then followed the body's response while taking measures of the kidney's function. It is the first operation of its kind. I'm going to pause to here for just a second. So the, the writer uh, is, you know, 
sets us up as well that we're going to have serious ethical questions and we think okay yeah, because you're, you're you're harvesting organs from from animals but the ethical question is because we've tested this on essentially a brain dead human that's where the ethical dilemma lies ah okay now i understand all right let me keep going uh, the researchers tracked the results for just 54 hours, and many questions remained to be answered about the long-term consequence of such an operation. The procedure will not be available to patients anytime soon, as there are significant medical and regulatory hurdles to overcome. Still, experts in the field hailed the surgery as a milestone. Quote, this is a huge breakthrough, said Dr. Dori Segev, a professor of transplant surgery at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, who was not involved in the research. It's a big, big deal. A steady supply of organs from pigs, which could eventually, I'm sorry, which could eventually include hearts, lungs, and livers, would offer a lifeline to the more than 100,000 Americans currently on transplant waiting lists, including a 90,240 who need a kidney. Uh, the the 90,000. 12 people on the waiting list die each day, and even large number of Americans with kidney failure, more than half a million, depend on grueling dialysis treatments to survive. What's the matter with you? Kidney dialysis. Dialysis? My God, what is this, the dark ages? In large part because of the scarcity of human organs, the vast majority of dialysis patients do not qualify for, pay I'm sorry, do not qualify for transplants, which are reserved for the most likely to thrive after the procedure. The transplanted kidney was obtained from a pig genetically engineered to grow an organ unlikely to be rejected by the human body. In a close approximation of an actual transplant procedure, the kidney was attached to blood vessels in the patient's upper leg outside the abdomen. The organ started functioning normally, making urine and waste product, uh, creatinine, I ever always mispronounced that, almost immediately, according to Dr. Robert Montgomery, the director of the NYU Langone Transplant Institute who performed the procedure in September. All right, now there is another five or six, seven paragraphs. Uh, I'm not going to bother. It just goes into the details and, you know, the specifics of the surgery and, and, and that way down three quarters of the way down through this article, we get to the following, read you a couple more paragraphs here. Genetically engineered pigs quote could potentially be sustainable, could be a sustainable renewable source of organs, the solar and wind of organ availability. Dr. Montgomery said, the prospect of raising pigs to harvest their organs for humans is bound to raise questions about animal welfare and exploitation, though an estimated 100 million pigs already are killed in the United States each year for food. Quote, pigs aren't spare parts and should never be used as such just because humans are too self-centered to donate their bodies to patients desperate for organ transplants, said a statement from the organization People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, or PETA. Another, another four handful of paragraphs after that, but that was, that's as much as I want to get to. So what do you think, right? Uh, now, it, it, I was really uh, interested in the, the comments, right? New York Times lets you, lets you for comments. And there was a lot of back and forth. There was a lot of hand, you know, grappling with, with the animal, you know, and people get very angry that, you know, well, would you give up, you know, from an ethical perspective, if it was your loved one on the line, uh, would you, you wouldn't hesitate, you know, to get a pig organ. And uh, then you have, of course, the, the people sort of, you're going down this, why, why a pig? Is it, is it okay to, to genetically modify them? On and on. Uh, I, um, 
I just throw it out there. You know, if you've if you have thoughts or comments on that, uh, go ahead and shoot me something. Just go over to the other animals website. Love to hear what you think on it. All right, listen, uh, that that's that's what we're gonna do for news today. When we come back, uh, Matt Zampa from Sentient Media is gonna fill us on on this strange and horrible dilemma about the butcher shortage in the United Kingdom. Uh, don't go away. Fully functional. Fully functional. All right. Once again, I'm back to uh, please to bring back uh, Matt Zampa from uh, our partner association. That's uh, Sentient Media. Matt, welcome back. Hope you're feeling uh, back with the living here. Yes, I am. It's good to be back. I was a little under the weather, but uh, feeling much better now. Excellent. Yeah. Some somehow we we muddle through, but it just wasn't the same with that. <laughs> All right. So, so Sentient Media's been busy here in the last month. There's a there's a couple uh, kind of amazing uh efforts i guess or or uh stories that, that you've been working on um let's start if, if it's all right with you let's start with um this strange story uh com- comes out of the uk and it has to do with a, sh- a shortage of butchers which is just a, a, a it's weird um t- tell us the background about this and, and what's going on with with uh this this uh this story yeah, so it's it's you're right. It's strange, and it caught a lot of people off guard, <clears throat> all for different reasons, right? So our one of our uh, contributing writers, Hannah McKay, shot me an email and said, "Hey, look, like I'm seeing a lot of people call this shortage of butchers a crisis, and it just so happened that a lot of folks in the industry were were calling this a crisis, right?" And her gut reaction was like, "Yeah, like what? This is not." the main crisis we need to be focusing on in the pork industry, mm-hmm. right? Of all their crises, this is the least, this is right. probably right. the best possible thing that could happen, right? Now, yeah, obviously, and we never- And I was going to say, this is exactly what Sentient Media is doing, right? Because the way the way the story is presented is that, oh, the, the shortage of butchers is, is a crisis. And that's, right. that is presented, and that, that's, the, the story is written that way, and it's presented through media as though it's acceptable that there is this thing called the pork industry and that, uh, you know, that the absence of butchers is a crisis. So this is, this to me, it seems like exactly what, what your organization is all about to say, wait a minute, let's, let's, let's break this down a little bit. Right. And that, that's, yeah. that's what the story is about. Is it, right. Yeah. That's exactly where it goes. And there are a few nice layers that Hannah was able to kind of peel away uh, <clears throat> the most memorable memorable of them being that, uh, that, you know, a lot of the discomfort and a lot of the problem stemmed around who actually had to kill the animals, mm-hmm. right? So when there's a shortage of butchers, um, there's a, a backup essentially at farms, right? Mm-hmm. And this forces the farmers to cull or, or kill um, their animals. And so a lot of the grumblings were, were from farmers saying, I don't want to do it myself, right? And to me, that just feels so symptomatic of the industry, like you said, and um, it feels like such a disconnect and such a problem. So um, we spent some time, uh, yeah, Hannah really did a really nice job, um, you know, breaking down that whole issue and, and really driving at, um, you know, the layers underneath, um, one of them being that general discomfort around who's doing the killing of the uh, yeah, farm animals. It is interesting, right? Because you don't necessarily uh, realize that there is a disconnect between the farmer and the butcher, 
right? We just assume, well, you know, the, the, the animals raised on, on the, and I put in air quotes, the farm right. and, and the person doing the raising would really have no discomfort with, because they know what the fate of the animal is. And yet the reality is that they don't want anything to do with, that's not what they do. There, there are two different, you know, to, to, to raise the animal and get it ready for slaughter is not the same as slaughter. So the fact that there is discomfort uh, among the, the raisers, that's enlightening in a way, you know, it's, yeah. it's like they, um, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not quite, quite sure, but so it, so just a little deeper when the, the farmers are forced to, and that's one of our favorite words here to call when, when they have right. to, when they have to do this thing, essentially uh, the, the it's dispatch, right? The animals, the, there is no it, pork is not produced. They just kill them and, and dispose of, of the corpses. Is, is that what, what comes of this? Yeah, that's, so that's the other, that's the second layer, right? Um, that this is essentially, it's causing massive waste um, from the industry's point of view, right? And um, from our point of view or, or an unbiased observer's point of view, you know, it's just, it just looks like more needless killing. Now, yeah. what many people don't connect, <clears throat> connect is that these animals were on their way to die, right? right. They're they going to be put on transport trucks and, and sent to slaughterhouses. Um, but like we keep circling around and this is nothing against the farmers themselves. They're just not trained to kill this many animals on their own. Mm -hmm. Right. So like the idea of taking thousands of animals out behind your farm and shooting them is not something that they want to do, nor are they trained to do. They, they're not trained to do it humanely. So many, many are not trained to do it humanely. So yeah, it just creates a lot of weird problems. And um, I, I found it both, you know, upsetting mm -hmm. to read this story, but, but also really enlightening what, how the industry essentially functions, how much uh, disinformation or, or kind of confused information the, the industry functions on, right? Because um, for us, you know, it's, it's clear as day that, that they only call crisis when it affects them or it affects their bottom line, their, their yeah, profit, right? Right, right? And for everyone else, you're like, you're just killing animals. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's a big problem here. That's it. But, but that's the power of the language. That, that's exactly what, what, we, what we've been talking about, right? That's, you use that word, exactly what you just said, that crisis, what is the crisis? The crisis is, is it's hitting our pocketbook. Uh, it's hitting our bottom line. It's hitting our profit. You know, and, and, you know, one thing I'll say on the side, we, we tend to, to see that as uh, more of, a, of an American, I want to say Western, but but an American problem. But the fact that this is, you know, this is in Europe, uh, they, they, got the same, <laughs> they got the same quote unquote pressures, you know, as, as any capitalistic um, uh, market. And they have the same the same thing with language, right? Because because of those pressures, that's what takes precedence. Uh, over over the actual what's actually going on right we we yeah. that we bury we bury the killing we bury the misery we bury the transportation we bury all, all the all the suffering that goes on uh in in deference to to a profit so i'm just curious now the the uh headline and of course uh, invite all our all this just to go check out it's on sentientmedia.org and you see that actually this is for this week anyway this is the the lead story a shortage of butchers is the least of the pork industry's problems uh, what does hannah conclude is are the bigger problems i think you know she identifies a few 
<laughs> because there are quite a few. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, there are some of the easiest ones to look at are, are, are that many facilities, you know, <clears throat> are caught in violation of even the most basic welfare standards and then they continue to, they're repeat offenders, right? Mm -hmm. So you could look at that as one symptom of the pork industry. One of its biggest crises is that they're unable to enforce even the most basic welfare standards. Mm -hmm. um, another, uh, obviously being rampant animal abuse. You know, we're, we're painting with a broad brush here because these problems are so huge. Um, and another being, uh, obviously there are like labor concerns and, you know, we don't want to, we're not here to kind of gang up on, on farmers or um, folks at slaughterhouses, neither of those gigs, that's not a good job where either side of that equation. So, um, you know, there, there are problems there with like, how do we uh, transition away from this? And, and is the pork industry uh, even willing? And, and clearly, you know, they're not addressing their, their most central, their, their largest problems. So from our view, you know, like, yeah, a shortage of butchers is, you know, it's a labor shortage induced by COVID-19. It's a lot of things, right? Um, but the problems at hand are, are much more clear cut it's, it's animal abuse. It's, it's, you know, it's clear as day. But it's, it's an interesting intersection because what you're, it's, it's the old um, argument that, you know, let's suppose the demand were to tomorrow evaporate, that people were, would stop saying, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to buy this, right? The, the, I, I've, the, 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 you know, the, the, uh, my eyes are opened and I don't want to have any more, anything to do with the suffering and I'm not buying these products anymore. Demand dries up. Uh, now, what happens to the uh, the the, well, the welfare of either the farmers or the or the slaughterhouse workers? I mean, we're saying you know they have to get new jobs. <laughs> that that's always out there. It's like, what would happen if that were to go away? And it, I'm just you know, that's it. That's that's in the mix, right? That yeah, they they get new jobs. <laughs> that's part of the equation, right? Yeah, there needs to be a large scale, like an industry wide transition away from. Mm -hmm. Uh, animal agriculture. And that doesn't mean that there's not going to be factory jobs, mm -hmm. right? Like mm -hmm. a slaughterhouse in many people's view is just another form of a factory, right? Yeah. So yep. like, you know, we don't need to be slaughtering animals. We can make other products. Frankly, we can make other products in the same facilities once we clean them, right? Yeah, like, like, you know, there, there's yeah. a lot of infrastructure. Um, uh, there's a ton of infrastructure uh, built into animal agriculture. And yeah, that is the big question, right? Because that there's a price tag on all of that, right? Mm -hmm. Those facilities are worth a lot of money. They generate a lot of money. Um, so the transition away from animal agriculture, if demand were to evaporate overnight, um, would be super messy. Now it's not going to evaporate overnight. If it you know, slowly declines over decades, that transition might look a little cleaner um, because it'll give us time to adapt and, and you know, introduce new industries and, and uh, help train folks who, who were previously, you know, animal farmers. We can train them to grow mushrooms or, or right. hemp or uh, there are a lot of decent alternatives already in use. So, yeah, yeah hopefully it just doesn't happen overnight. And I that's exactly that's yeah. exa it, it would not happen. It would it would it would be a a manageable transition. You know, and it, we're even seeing it. There, there's so much precedence for it. You know, we're seeing I think we're seeing um, my home state. There, there, it's been all over the news because of uh, our, our, our senator. Uh, this is uh, uh, West Virginia uh, is, is such a powerful swing vote. And there's this thing with coal. Well, what happens? Coal is, is really quite awful for, for my home state. 
And yet they don't want to let go of it because what are, what are all the coal miners going to do? And uh, there's precedent before that. What happened to the tobacco farmers? What did they do when that went? It, 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 this is this is not this is not unprecedented, you know. And and um, it, it it needs to be part of the conversation, you know. I, I think that's that's um, it's not you know if if this were to happen, it would happen gradually. It would happen. Uh, uh, people would have would have time. And you'd move on, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think there's an interesting example, and I, I don't know who to credit this to. This is not my idea. I read it somewhere. Um, and they, they essentially uh, had this great long view on history and said that every time that humans have used animals for any kind of industry, that technology has ultimately ended up replacing the animal. Mm. Right? <laughs> and so the number one example was, uh, you know, horse-drawn carriages to cars, sure. mm-hmm. right? And, you know, now we're even, we're even re- trying to replace the car because uh, obviously it comes with a huge carbon cost. So yep. I, I think that there's a lot of truth behind that and, and it might just take a little time, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, right now in California, and this is not necessarily a good thing, but it, ju- it just shows that um, the opportunity is there. Uh, Beyond Meat, because demand is so high, often has to process some of their products in facilities that also process animal products, right? I did know that. (laughs) Not not great, Mm -hmm. but also goes to show that the infrastructure is there. there. (laughs) That's a a real good example of what that transition that you were just describing. Yeah. All right, good. So now you had um, so so that's the uh, that's the butcher shortage in in the in the UK. Now you've got another uh, another sort of larger large conference that you're uh, you're getting ready for. Um, we were just talking about that. Uh, bring us up to speed on that. Yeah. So COP twenty six, which is the UN's big annual climate uh, conference, starts. Let me look at my calendar in like two weeks. Um, so we're preparing some coverage for that. Um, a lot of it will be directed at, you know, how do we hold world leaders accountable to their um, climate goals? And, and more importantly, how often is animal agriculture incorporated in these climate goals or these strategies to kind of reduce our impact, right? Very often folks skip over animal agriculture's impact, um, despite it being comparable to, you know, all the transportation sector, like many other high polluting sectors combined, right? Uh, animal agriculture has a massive impact on the climate. So we want to make sure that folks are aware of that first and foremost. Um, we'll do our part to try to hold world leaders accountable uh, and, and, and kind of report on what they actually say at the event. Um, but we're also just thinking about more creative ways to tell this story about, you know, sustainability and what that really means. Obviously, it looks different for everyone. And, and very often folks say the words sustainability and then they say like, you know, chicken farming in the same sentence. Yeah. And that doesn't make any sense. That logically does not make any sense. Right. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're trying to kind of, yeah, pick apart, you know, these weird sustainability claims that the mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. big meat and dairy put out there. One of my favorite stories that's coming out this week or sorry, next week uh, is, uh, is a wish list, a sentient media climate wish list. Right. And so we're, we're going through all of these kind of fake false promises that the industry is making and saying, hey, look, that's not 
enough. You know, like, this is what we want you to do. This is what we'd like you to see. And it'll be a little on the nose, you know, not 100% practical, but it'll get the point across that this claims they are making are not enough. For those who don't know, uh, the the conference itself, who who, who attends this? Is this like... um... Uh, is it industry leaders? Is it political leaders? Is and it's really it it is global. Uh, yeah, it's, 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 it is decision makers, right? Right. It's policymakers. It's world leaders. It's uh, a UN conference. So obviously they invite a lot of different folks, but there are a lot of elected officials there. Um, the industry's there. I mean, the like big meat and dairy will be there. Uh, you know, hosting backroom meetings and and sometimes it's a little more obvious <laughs> they're just there and they're they're saying hey we're committed to sustainability right so um the point i guess wow. is that there's a lot at stake right and and there's a lot of uh lip service right there's a lot of things that feel very rehearsed at these types of conferences and so uh where we feel like we fit into that is um taking somebody's speech about sustainability and you know, not only fact-checking it, but also commenting on it and mm-hmm. saying, look, you know, this is not a realistic thing to focus on, or, hey, you said this last year and you didn't do anything about it. How you know? would you do that? I'm just curious. Do you challenge them like live? Like if they're making, if they're making a presentation and there's a Q&A afterwards, you pick them apart afterwards or you, you do, um, you write about it afterwards? Yeah. Most of the time we have to just write about, I, I wish I could be there and, and ask them questions to their face. I think that would feel a lot more gratifying for me and I know for our readers as well. But ultimately what it ends up looking like is if there's a press conference after a talk, you know, I'm in a Zoom room and I get to ask questions in the Zoom chat. So everybody, including the press and big conferences like this have been adapting to uh, COVID. And, and that's kind of what the media landscape looks like now at around these events. Um, now the event itself <clears throat> will be had, uh, held partially in person and, and there, there will be a, the majority of the attendance will be virtual. Um, so yeah, now I won't be able to corner. Well, anymore. that changes the dynamic a lot, right? Because now <laughs> yeah. that they, they can completely control the, the, the whole, I was going to, my next question was going to be for the people that are um, on site that are present. Do you, do you anticipate protesters? Do you impress, you know, that, that type of, but it seems like if, if it's a, if it's a mostly virtual event, that's not going to avail itself to that kind of uh, that kind of publicity to call attention to the to the causes that that people <laughs> um, that might otherwise be doing what you're doing, which is just to pick through some of the some of the smokescreen. That's not right. going to be that's not going to be uh, an option. But yeah, there'll be significantly less in person, you know, activity. But I think that that is okay. It's it's not the worst thing. We're not missing an opportunity because. Uh, grassroots activists are organizing, you know, in wherever they live um, and making noise about it there. And honestly, I think that that might have a bigger impact as long as it gets covered. You know, I am completely behind um, safely uh, organizing kind of in your local area around climate issues. I think that's insanely impactful. And I hope to see more of it leading up to and even after the conference. Um, I know there's going to be a lot of momentum carrying into the next few months. So um, I'm excited to see what comes of it. Yeah, me too. Uh, we'll have to definitely follow. Up. Yeah, well, we'll definitely want to we'll follow up now. Hopefully, 
we'll be talking uh, before then on other uh, other issues. But yeah, yeah, when that when that is all said and done, uh, we're gonna want to we're gonna want to check back and, and hear how it went. So uh, best of uh, best of luck with that. All right, so uh, that's Matt Zampa with uh, Sentient Media. Thanks thanks so much, and we will be uh, looking forward to talking with you on our next next time. Cool. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Matt. All right. A quick break here. Uh, then we're going to have my featured conversation with Christopher Berry and Ariel Flint from the Animal Legal Defense Fund on Pablo Escobar's notorious hippos and how the United States judicial system got involved. Do not go away. <laughs> All right. Last week, as uh, for those who pay attention, uh, you may remember I mentioned uh, the curious story, uh, as reported by AP and other sources, about the uh, the Escobar hippos. Now, just just to refresh, I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs from the AP article. The offspring of hippos, once owned by Colombian drug kingpin Pablo Escobar, can be recognized as people or quote interested persons with legal rights in the U.S. following a federal court order. The case involves a lawsuit against the Colombian government over whether to kill or sterilize the hippos whose numbers are growing at a fast pace and pose a threat to biodiversity. An animal rights group is hailing the order as a milestone victory in the long sought efforts to sway the U.S. justice system to grant animals personhood status. That's just a little intro from the AP article. Now, it just so happens that the animal rights group in question is the Animal Legal Defense Fund, or ALDF. And it also just so happens that I happen to have two key representatives from that organization that help bring that groundbreaking decision to reality. First, I have uh, Christopher Berry. He's a managing direct, uh, sorry, managing attorney with the ALDF, and he works on a broad range of animal issues, including puppy mills, factory farms, and consumer rights. Uh, he earned his JD from University of Michigan. And also with us is Ariel Flint. He's a staff attorney at the ALDF, and he works to develop groundbreaking legal strategies to improve the status and lives of animals through the legal system. He also earned his JD from the University of Michigan. We have a couple Wolverines. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Awesome. Thank All you. right. Well, well, let's just, uh, for those, you know, that was a very, very, very high level intro. And again, the, the AP article isn't nearly as comprehensive, in fact, as yours. It's up on the ALDF website. But for, if you could just give us a, a background, uh, the history of this case, uh, for those, you know, even our, our younger listeners, who the hell is Pablo Escobar? <laughs> so uh, t tell us a little bit about uh, what, what the history here is. Yeah, great. So Pablo Escobar was a really notorious drug trafficker who lived in Colombia. And in the 80s and 90s, he kind of became potentially the world's richest person. He was huge. And he decided in the 80s that he wanted to have a private zoo on his property in Colombia. Okay. And to do that, he started importing a bunch of exotic animals, including four hippos. Now, a few years later, the Colombian government managed to kill Escobar and they confiscated that property and they took away most of the animals, but they didn't know what to do with the hippos. They couldn't transport them anywhere. So they just left those four hippos on Escobar's property to do what hippos do. And then 30 years have passed. Mm. And in that time, the hippos have started to reproduce. They escaped the property, infiltrated into the local river system. Okay. And they've kind of become an invasive species that are po who are posing a threat to the local ecosystem 
and whose overpopulation has become a real issue in the local community. Okay. So, so just so I understand the, um, and again, it's, you know, for maybe naive in Colombia, hippos are not, are not native. They're not indigenous in that part of the, of the world. So it, it, it's not unfair to, to say they, uh, invasive species, you know, has where we just the last couple of weeks we've been talking about here in Pennsylvania. I have this uh, spotted lanternfly thing going on here, an invasive species, and, and it's qu- quite an issue. And we have this this image of what a what a invasive species is, and you know that what what it can uh, the damage that it could potentially do, and then the more damage you do by trying to control the invasive species by bringing in other species, and it tends to be a a, a cascading. Uh, disaster most of the time but i we are we least agreement that at least from the colombians perspective there there is a problem and and wonder if you could just go into a little more detail what what the hip how the hippos do represent um uh in in an in invasive nature absolutely so in colombia the hippos kind of have an ideal environment they don't have any predators it's yeah. great weather there's ample food supply and so there there's no check on their population mm-hmm. And it's starting to affect uh, the other animals in the ecosystem and and the human communities as well. <laughs> I'm guessing it's it's the if the effect on the human communities that really uh, that really got the attention more than than uh, than anything else. <laughs> That's probably what got. Yeah, them it's it, yeah. it's it's a little bit mixed actually because it's it's also been a boon for the local economy because they've become a tourist attraction uh-huh. in Colombia. Okay, so, yeah. I just want to add to it's the. Uh, this is a little bit of a uh, of a tangent, but there's like there's some question about whether whether they're actually bad for the environment um, because they they may be filling a niche from extinct megafauna uh, that were killed off by humans within the last few thousand years. So there so there is there is some uh, contrary scientific uh, questioning about that. But that's uh, I'm not a biologist, uh, conservation PhD expert, so. I, I won't say any more about that. <laughs> no, no, thanks, Chris. But, but you know that that actually is. I was kind of going to going to probe that because you know the nature of the nature of to, to what degree they really represent uh, a a problem or a danger uh, that that has raised it to this level of visibility that we need. You know that now we're we're in the in uh, we're back to talking about population control. You know what are we going to do? How are we going to to, to manage this? Either by killing them or some kind of, of a, of a sterilization program. And that, that's where I, where I think um, you come in, in terms of managing this. So, so t- tell us how, okay. So tell, tell us how uh, ALDF came to be involved uh, with the case. Right. So um, actually uh, one or two years ago, there was a scientific study saying that the hippos, if, if nothing is done now, their population could grow to several hundred or, or potentially to thousands. And so the Colombian government started to seriously consider the possibility of killing at least some of the hippos to control their population. What happened next was that a Colombian animal rights lawyer and law professor, his name is Luis Domingo Gomez Maldonado, he filed the lawsuit on behalf of the hippos themselves, which you can do in Colombia. How, how so? How, do they, how can they do that? We, we couldn't do that in, in the States, right? Right. They- it's similar. It's similar to what we do in the U.S. when you can file a lawsuit on behalf of a minor. Okay. In, in Colombia, their constitutional court has said that you can do something similar okay. on behalf of animals to represent their interests in, in litigation. Okay. So he did that. And the litigation, the point of the lawsuit is basically to say the government cannot kill the hippos 
without considering the possibility of non-lethal sterilization or birth control. Oh, okay. So the, that's it. And this at this so at this point the the where it's purely it's a Colombian plaintiff on behalf of of an animal client, the hippos, and they essentially got a, a favorable ruling from that court to say that that in fact the hippos' interests are uh, viable and, and valid. That that's how I'm hearing that that ruling. The the constitutional court decision that I referred to is from a previous case. Okay. It just gave permit, permission for, for attorneys to represent animals in this way. Okay. This case is still ongoing. It hasn't reached the constitutional court yet. Okay. So all right. So yeah. now so that so at this point we're still we're still completely in, in Colombia now. So now how how does ALDF an American uh, organization get involved? Right. So after the Colombian lawsuit was filed, this big international NGO, they do great work. Their name is Animal Balance. They made it they made an announcement that they had developed a plan to carry out the non-lethal sterilization of the hippos okay and they formed a team of experts who had very particular expertise on how to carry out the non-lethal sterilization of hippos right okay. Okay. and those experts most of them were based in the united states they are based in the united states and so the colombian attorney asked us as u.s lawyers at aldf to help him gather oh. their testimonies for use in the Colombian litigation. Okay. Because the, Colum the Colombian court can't compel someone in the United States to give their testimony there. Oh, oh, oh. So you needed, you needed an American court to essentially certify or authorize, or, or you, you, needed, you needed standing as an American organization to, to, it's not, to, to file or to, to, or to essentially to engage on a legal basis, right? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. We had to ask for permission from a U.S. court to gather okay. evidence here in support of the Colombian litigation. Okay, so what happened? So you, you so, filed it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the hippos are the plaintiffs in Colombia. So when we came into the United States, we had to file it on behalf of the hippos too. So we, so we filed it on behalf of the community of hippopotamuses living in the Magdalena River, which is the river where they live in Colombia. Okay. And we asked for permission to collect the testimony of two experts who live in the Cincinnati area okay. from the Southern District of Ohio, which is a federal court. So it was a federal, so it was a federal court, it wasn't a state. Okay. All right. Go ahead. Exactly. But to do so, we had to make use of a very specific statute titled 28 U.S.C. 1782. And that statute, to make use of it, you have to be an interested person appearing before a foreign tribunal. Okay. Right? Okay. And, and so we had to persuade the court that the hippos are interested persons appearing before the Colombian court. Ah, okay. And you got that ruling? We got that ruling because the United States Supreme Court has interpreted this statute and the, and the meaning of interested person within, the, within that statute as automatically including a foreign litigant. So if you're a party to the foreign litigation, you are no doubt considered an interested person within the meaning of this statute. Uh, so you weren't fighting, I don't mean to, to dwell too much on the legal aspect on this an animal show, but I am intrigued with. So you, you weren't necessarily fighting precedent because you, had, you already had a Supreme Court ruling that that sort of paved the way that you had you had this 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 um 
and it was it's like a i say clever but it, it was a it was a um a legitimate <laughs> interpretation of using that precedent on behalf of of the hippos but you didn't as i was saying you didn't have to fight to um move back in other words for, for the for you to get this ruling the judge was not was and it was who was it a, a male judge female judge or but i'm saying he or she didn't have to necessarily stick his neck out to say oh you know i'm i'm you know breaking with 200 years of common uh common court justice type of thing right yeah in fact they would have to have uh, law, stuck I mean. the, they would have to have stuck their neck out in the other direction uh, and yeah. effectively thumbed their, thumbed their nose at the Supreme Court precedents. Uh, and, and so, it, and, and one thing that's been remarkable too about the coverage, even from, from critics, uh, you know, in the kind of the animal agriculture or, uh, you know, animal exploitation industries, uh, no, no one's questioning the veracity of, of the order or the decision. They, the, uh, the criticism has just been like, oh, this, it doesn't matter but it, not, not that the judge made the wrong decision. So it's really, it's, oh. as far as I'm concerned, it's, it's essentially a slam, a slam, a slam dunk, dunk. from so, a legal perspective, but it's a slam dunk that got uh, animals to be recognized yes. as legal <laughs> persons for the first time in U.S. history. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's such a clever end around, you know, to, to, to get this really groundbreaking kind, kind of a ruling. Uh, I'm curious, just spend a second here, um, and again, I don't mean to dwell too much on, on the legal asset, but an interested person. What does that mean from a legal perspective? What what is what are the implications for that, and, and particularly as it, as it pertains to the hippos or other animals as interested people? Uh, it's uh, I mean that's a great question. It's uh, and a really important one. It's the and the answer. The the short of it is that really the definition of a, you know, a, of a person can depend on the. The legislative on the uh, sort of the, the context of the statutory scheme. Uh, so, so person can can have different meanings in, di in different contexts. You know, and, and for example, uh, corporations are considered legal persons, and so are humans, of course. But there there are there are some contexts in which you know person exclusively is referring to humans and not corporations. Uh, with you know with regard to some constitutional rights, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, so, it it that's one way of answering it, saying. It can be a little confusing, uh, or it can depend a bit on the circumstances. But really, the the simple and succinct answer is that uh, a legal person is someone who has a, a legal right and a, a judicially recognized interest in enforcing that right. So essentially, you have a legal right and the ability to enforce that right in court. And it can be, and it it can it can vary. It can be kind of a right by right analysis. It doesn't necessarily mean that if you're a person, you have these this list of a thousand rights. It means mm -hmm. that you just have at least one right uh, or more, and the ability to enforce that in court. Understood. So, so the the subtlety there that that we have a, for the first time a, a non human entity who has been granted uh, interested person status. What does that mean in terms of precedent? Uh, are, are there other? It was you know the AP article that um, that i read this little uh, just the intro to it gets down towards you know six or seven paragraph and uh it mentions um and i want to ask you a little bit about this um one of the organizations we have frequently on here is non-human rights project who's approaching this from from a different angle but there is there's this tone in the article 
that how that there's an absurdity to it right that if i grant some kind of a legal status to end to anything that is human uh where does it end you know are insects going to have legal status you know you, you open up this huge pandora's box do does this does this ruling open that door does it does it you know does does it have have that type of implication do you think it's uh, uh this precedent is I think it's a paradigm shift. I think we'll look back on it as a moment where we where we turned a corner and an entirely new paradigm uh, within our legal culture and legal body of case law in the United States has uh, has started, uh, and which is, uh, you know, not, not absurd. Uh, it's really it's absurd the way things have been and the way they were before. That as a society we would pass uh, an animal cruelty law, for example where we say we don't we don't want animals to be tortured you know or neglected or abused uh, or and, you know killed without a good reason mm-hmm. and and it, but there's no there's no way to enforce that on behalf of an animal you know there meritorious cases come, come across our our desk or i guess email uh, inbox nowadays uh on a regular basis that that we turn down because we just can't imagine who would have standing to inf- to stop the cruelty and then when we do file a case, we spend tons of time arguing, you know, does this human or corporation who kind of coincidentally suffered an injury, do they have standing yeah. to stop cruelty? Yeah. Uh, and sometimes those cases get thrown out too. And, and, and so the status quo is that we say the society and our, and our legal system says animals have a right not to be abused. And, you know, and I think we all know that that matters to the animal and it matters to us, but, at this, but, but when we ask do you know, as the animal, a, a, a person um, with the ability to have this law enforced on their behalf and, and judges to say, no, we don't, we don't think they have a recognizable legal interest in not being cruelly abused. Mm-hmm. And, and to, that's the absurdity. That's that. Yeah. And that's, uh, I, you know, I follow these. I'm really intrigued with this. And uh, we, we were talking a little bit before uh, I, I mentioned I've had a non-human rights project on here several times. And their their approach is uh, a little different than, than yours. They're, they're going for uh, essentially the a, a standing, a status, but uh, to achieve that through something very broad, uh, which is habeas corpus. And not, and I want to get into you know ALDF versus NHRP, but that that is a, um, for them. It's been a much tougher nut to crack because you that as opposed to what what you just did, NHRP is attempting to establish precedent. And although, the, you know, the way you just described, it, it's like, well, it really isn't. But but I, I just wonder if you take a second of the like, interested person versus habeas corpus. What what's uh, what's the difference between those two approaches? From a yeah, and this, yeah. And this kind, this kind of goes back to my, my earlier observation that, you know, a person can sort of uh, it can be kind of a chameleon depending on the circumstances. So yeah. um, it, uh, the you, you know, the short of it is what we've done with the hippos, it is paradigm shifting. We've, we've had an animal recognized as a legal person and a judge has authorized them to exercise legal rights and has, has acknowledged their ability to enforce, to have legal rights enforced on their behalf, which is really groundbreaking. It's also very limited, right? The, mm-hmm. what we asked for was to, uh, to compel the testimony of two experts in, in, in a two, three hour depositions. You know, which which is uh, important for the hippos. It could be a matter of life or death for their lawsuit in, in Colombia in, in terms of the value of the evidence. But it's not. Um, but it's still very limited. Um, you know, by contrast, the with the habeas corpus argument, 
there there's a there are related rights not not you know not just ability to file habeas corpus but to have the benefits of it which which uh, would prohibit yeah. um you know unlawful you know detainment is a sort of uh you know roughly tantamount to a right to liberty so mm -hmm. the so the you know what the non-human rights uh project is, is asking for is you know rights that would be much more meaningful to the animals than, than just the ability to depose a couple of experts in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, but it, they're, they're, both, they're both touching on this concept of personhood. That, that, was, yes. that was the piece that, that, uh, that I saw in common, uh, you know, that you have, you've achieved legal status and they're working via habeas corpus to get this notion that, that there is, they're entitled to be for their interests to be uh, um, recognized and respected, for lack of a, of a better word, and you're just coming at it from, from two different two different pers perspectives, but that that's what that's the common thread, right? Yeah, yeah. The common thread is is that is the word person, mm -hmm. um, even even if the, sort of the rights that are being associated with it are are different in, in yeah. degrees of yeah. magnitude, and yeah. you know that you know the way you know the way precedent works and the way history works is. Some an event happens, but it, you know, just like a firework, you know, there's the initial combustion, and then, you know, and then it grows in size, and then it falls down. Uh, so even a firework, it, there, there's a there's an arc of time sort of related to all of this, and and I, you know, I really believe that when we look back on on the animal law and you know animal protection movement, that that you know this will this will all be part of an arc, uh, yeah. and that the hip the hippo this hippo order, even though it's, you know, uh, mundane in, in some respects is, is going to be, you know, that, that, uh, that ignition of, of the yeah. firework. Yeah. So, so let me ask you, so the, the, um, getting back to the case, where does it, where does it say now? What's the, so we, you've, you've established this privilege in, in the States now you're, now you're able to go essentially participate in the case in Columbia. And you mentioned before that it's still, it's still pending, but, uh, where, 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 how's it pending? Where, where does it stand? Ariel? Yeah, so um, we're in the process of collecting the testimony from these two experts in the Ohio area. Their testimony is going to be super helpful for the litigation in Colombia, uh, especially considering that these experts whose, whose statements we're going to take have actually performed non-lethal sterilization on hippos before. So that's going to be really important evidence in the Colombian litigation to help prove that it's viable, that it's effective, and that it's safe for the hippos and, and, and for the people who are administering it as well. Yeah, so I, I was reading a little bit about the, the sterilization option again, going back to the AP, and they, they had an earlier article from February. One of one of the problems they mentioned that uh, at least at that point that it was ex expensive and, and difficult that the sterilization um, was could be around eighty five hundred dollars per per hippo, and then there's all this you know you got to trick <laughs> trick the hippo get it get it into a uh, you know some sort of a of a confinement uh, sedated find the organs in 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 uh, you know whether it's male or female, and then actually do the operate, you know, do the deed. Uh, is that still the case? Is is it really still uh, that complicated of an issue to to do the sterilization? Or have we have we you know got some scalability here? Yeah, I'm going to be treading into territory that I'm not an expert that's on. Okay. So that's the huge caveat. Yeah. My understanding is that the Colombian government had tried surgical sterilization with the hippos before, and that proved to be very complicated and very expensive. And that the new method that's being proposed by these experts is less expensive. I believe they've actually, 
actually offered to uh, do it at no cost to the Colombian government. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. And that it's also much less complicated. I, it might even be a dart, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So uh, okay. you don't need to get that up close and personal, potentially. <laughs> but again, this is not my area. All right. Uh, all right. But yeah. so at least the, the, it sounds like the argument, the old, and actually that was from, that was from February, that, that article, and you know, that how the, 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 comp- the complexity to actually do the, do the sterilization, you know, wasn't even really a viable um, solution. And it sounds like now it is. And given just from an ethical perspective, I, I don't know if you guys, you know, but, you know, given the choice of being killed or being sterilized, it, 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 it's obviously sterilization. You know, there, there is always this ethical, um, we, we actually had a couple of years ago, had a, a really interesting speaker um, arguing against, for example, sterilization of, of dogs uh, and cats based on, you know, that it's not in their in their best interest, that it's natural behavior for a dog and cat to procreate. And who are we, you know, who are we to, to, um, to intervene in that? You know, what are, what are the ethical uh, issues around that? But I, I, I don't think that's, in, that's necessarily in, in play here, right? Because we, we introduced, we, Carlos Escobar introduced the hippos into, a, into an environment where they don't belong. And as opposed to, as I was saying on the outset, bringing in additional species to try to control that, this seems to be the best solution, right? Yeah, and I, uh, you know, in in a way, we as lawyers, we actually get the benefit uh, to sort of sidesteps um, mm-hmm. a, a little bit because you know at the, at the end of the day, what, what we're trying to do is, um, you know, in the United States and and what's being done in, in Colombia on on that end of things is to is to enforce the law. Right. Yeah. And so at the end of the day, it's, uh, you know, in the legal system, it's ultimately the, um, you know, our responsibility to put forth the legal argument, uh, to do it in an ethical way, uh, in the interest of the animal, of course, and then, and then to have a judge like agree or sign off on that. And so that's, there's, um, you know, there's an entire system of, of making sure that, that the, you know, what's being done is, is, uh, in accordance with the law, um, and, you know, in ethical yeah 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 and so you sort of have that that built-in um, check and balance hey listen uh, uh chris Renary, i really really appreciate it. for people who don't know could you tell us a little bit about uh the aldf what i mean it's been around a long time i know but people who may not be familiar with the organization um tell us what the animal legal defense fund is and um where people can go to get a little more information or if they want to uh, help out yeah the animal legal defense fund is the the, the nation's preeminent animal law organization. Our, our mission is to um, protect the lives and advance the interests of animals through the legal system. So we, so we have multiple programs uh, and all, all focusing on different aspects of the legal system. So Ari and I are, are in the uh, civil litigation program. So, you know, we, we've file things like the, uh, dis, the HIPPO uh, discovery application, lawsuits against the government. We ask for injunctions and, um, then we have a you know criminal justice program who they consult with prosecutors and in, in criminal procedure type type issues, legislative affairs, uh, animal law, and then even pro bono network uh, program, uh, pro bono program. So so really just really just uh, focusing on all the facets of the legal system to to help animals, uh, and and that includes all animals too. You know companion, wildlife, uh, agriculture, all all the. Pro- you know, all of those subcategories of animals that, that we sometimes break them into. 
And your and your website is aldf.org. Yep, aldf.org, uh, and we have a you know active social media presence. So I, I always think you know Facebook or Instagram or Twitter; those are all good good ways to to stay up to date um, or you know become a member, sign up for for emails and things like that. Excellent, excellent. Uh, one last thing here is one whose whose uh, own name gets mispronounced all the time. Uh, Ariel, did I mispronounce you? Are you are you Ariel or Ariel? <laughs> both are fine really. okay all right, all right. You're, you're very kind because when somebody mispronounces my name for the 10th time i, I get very agitated but uh, appreciate listen so there's uh, christopher barry and ariel flint from the uh, animal legal defense fund thanks so much for your time and please stay in touch as this case develops i'd like to you know like check back in with with you all and and, uh, and see, see where this goes because this this is as you say it's groundbreaking and, it, and it's interesting stuff right absolutely thank you so much for having us all right thanks yeah. again take care thanks a lot yep all right, on the other side here, we're going to talk to uh, Dr. Tom Picard of All Pets House Calls here in Philadelphia. And he's got a warning for us about, of all things, well, let me just say, son of a birch. All right, we'll be right back. We think our vet is very helpful. We think our vet is smart and nice. Our vet takes such good care of us, but would rather stay home, would rather be home. And after a very brief hiatus here, well, uh, happy to welcome back Dr. Tom Picard, uh, Philadelphia's All Pets House Calls. Hey, Tom, how's it going? Hello, and happy fall, everyone. Happy and fall. don't forget to set your clocks back on it Saturday. Is, fall it, back. It is. Whenever that, Saturday that, is. <laughs> it is. It is that time. I, I look forward to it. I, I don't know. People hate the back and forth, but I, I like standard time. I like that extra hour. I don't like savings times i'm a i'm a when i'm an anarchist <laughs> anyway can I say? Yeah. all right so listen um we have um we, we're coming to this time of season here uh, a little early yet but um we we have the holidays approaching and there's going to be uh, all kinds of uh, food issues that will be uh available to our our dogs and cats and other pets that may not otherwise and i, I want to sort of explore that a little bit before we get to that there was um another food issue this just came up a couple weeks ago. There's this new product. Uh, it's actually not a new product. It's a very old product, but it's being marketed as birch sugar, birch is in the birch tree. And you say, well, what's, what is the problem with birch sugar? Sounds just, fantastic to it me. Sounds like I a, love si birch, birch beer. Yeah, right. I love that. Sign me up for it. The only problem is uh, what it really is, is our old friend xylitol. Uh, why don't you uh, remind our, remind our listeners what, why we ought to watch out for xylitol. Well, that that could even be in your birch beer, for all I know. Not oh, yeah. Pennsylvania Dutch birch beer brand birch beer, because that's the best. Uh, but actually, I would check that label, too. Uh, but <laughs> no, really, check all your no labels. No plugging there. That, yeah. <laughs> just yeah. my favorite. This is there my favorite birch beer. Not that it's good for you, but well, it's all right. We get our twenty percent. Uh, Sorry, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you really should check every label before you give it to any kind of pet you have or any animal whatsoever, including yourself, um, because you really should see what's in it. But just look at people. You don't even know half the time that there are nuts in things in oh, very yeah. small amounts, and there's people who are very allergic to nuts. Yeah, and as far as pets go there are things that they can eat and it doesn't bother them in the least there's things that we can eat that kills them yeah. uh, so yeah. it's very important to kind of like know what you're giving them yeah just uh, um, xylitol yeah. is not one thing you want to give them that's in a lot of it's a 
fake, you know, sugar uh, food sweetener. Um, so it's instead of real sugar, which isn't great for you, but I'd rather you give them real sugar than fake sugar because at least the real sugar does, doesn't kill them like the xylitol does. It's right, like, and just and like, just so, toxic like, to their, it, it to their liver. It's, it, uh, liver. Right, and, and it's it just for again refresh people's memory. It's it's mostly for. Uh, it's dogs that are being generally more uh, vulnerable to this than cats. And, and as you were starting to say, it's, it is, it's a, it attacks the liver, right? Or that's, that's the organ. That, yes. Yes. And, and then the mystery is one mystery is why are they disguising the name and calling it birch well, uh, yeah. sugar? Like it's some natural uh, product because it's not, it's very dangerous. It's really not good for people. And it's actually can be fatal and, enough dose for for dogs and, and and it's not good for cats either i'm sure it can mm. kill them as well okay uh, but we see more of a cats are less likely to eat weird stuff believe it or not okay. it just depends on the cat dogs yeah. dogs on general it's like if it's there let's let's it's eat it fair yeah. game, yeah. <laughs> see what happens later you know but it's also being marketed in some treats which is outrageous oh no um so you Pet really treats. have to look at all sometimes you'll see wow. these type of things i don't know what they're given wow. Uh, check every label. That's the best advice I can give. Avoid xylitol. Avoid tons of things, really. Uh, if you're not sure, look up these ingredients online. Google searches so you can get it in two seconds or ask your vet next time you see there you them. Go. Never go wrong with that. All right. So now uh, so we've, we've, we've issued our xylitol uh, alert <laughs> for the air. We, we've done our deed. Now we, we're heading into this time. and. and um, we do have holiday food and uh, that's always, uh, you were just saying, you know, particularly with dogs who will, who will eat anything, <laughs> even if it's moving or it's not moving. And um, there, I guess we should probably start with, um, with, for, with Turkey, you know, that's going to be, that's going to be all around for those who are, who are of the non-vegan, uh, non, non-vegetarian sort there, are, you know, our dogs are going to, are going to be exposed to that and other uh, what can you tell people about getting ready and getting, getting particularly your, your dogs safe around Thanksgiving? And, and our cats and birds and everything else and yeah. reptiles as well, because I mean, and I, I mentioned Turkey, of course, and we always do because it's, you know, one, the time of year too, it's, it's notorious uh, for being something that uh, a lot of animals can't handle. Uh, it just upsets their stomach, even in the smallest amounts. Uh, but the same could be said for uh, your mom's pumpkin pie, apple pie, you know, mm-hmm. stuffing, uh, you name it. So uh, most of those things are really should be avoided. And I mean, uh, it, you know, you want to give your pet a tiny bit of something like that. You really should be not doing that. But it, like as a ceremonial thing, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't even know what would be safe with that. Quite frankly, you really have to know your pet. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, like, like, for example, like mashed potatoes. I mean, some, some dog might have zero problem with that. They eat it all the time. You want to give them a little bit of that, you know, they're not going to get vomiting and diarrhea all over the place. I- I'm sure you're still fine this way. But when you start getting into things that they've never had before mm-hmm. and your guests don't know that, assuming you're having guests mm-hmm. in your house, mm-hmm. uh, that's when hors d'oeuvres get handed to your pet, whether no, no matter what type of pet it is, uh, or some sort of other food item. Maybe somebody brings something to your house and you don't even know what's in it. Mm-hmm. 
you should ask for yourself, let alone your pet. Um, yeah, and, yeah. you know, they, they get sicker a lot of times than we would for the very same things and you know, vice versa. Is the danger for them essentially that it's, that it's unknown that they've never, they've never digested it before and their body is going to freak out over like, what is this? Or are there certain for things some, that, like, like we're talking about with the xylitol that are just really toxic or really problematic for the animal? Both. I mean, you, you for something, for example, like turkey, it generally tends to just be something that's just really the breakdown of it in their in their intestinal systems uh, is just really difficult. They get really inflamed and irritated from it uh, more than other substances. Now, for some other dog or, or cat or whatever, the same might be said of beef. Uh, <laughs> pork definitely is one that that irritates a lot. Uh, it's just physically just difficult for them to digest. And, and it also has different components that are just can be one, one dog or cat, uh, they could eat the cactus in your house and they, they would pass it and that no problem. And it literally, I'm not barely exaggerating. No, I, uh, I and, an, and another would die from the same thing. So it's like, they're all different that way, but yeah. we generally know that most of these things in general are like, you're somebody's out there saying, Oh, my dog eats turkey all the time. It's never a problem. Yes, but the next door neighbor's dog might, you know, really get so sick they die from it, you know, yeah. or just yeah. get really bad diarrhea and stuff, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I have hear you. I, I got one cat that will just this cat, this cat. <laughs> oh, my family's listening already, but he's a great cat. He really is doing it. But he will eat. He will. He will eat anything. If I leave a snack, popcorn. Uh, uh, you name it. I've, I've had fritos anything he it's it's fair game and i don't know how, how this cat like it, it just you know it doesn't nothing phases him nice cat drives me crazy <laughs> mm-hmm. but yeah they, they get some of them get it and then i have another cat that the slightest variance off what diet will you, you'll get a gift the next morning you know and and uh, you just yeah. you just never know and so there's something to be said for that it uh, sounds you like know. you're lucky in terms of the one who eats stuff the I most know. is the least effective because yeah. they'd be looking at lots and lots of surgeries and things. Uh, tell me about it yeah but but is there anything uh, i mean i have a few minutes left is there anything on that menu so uh, the, given the given the the issue of of variety you know and and the unfamiliarity um just to maybe maybe bring it back sort of to, to the whole xylitol issue are there anything that is particular this time of year that is really uh, notoriously dangerous that we really want to tell, tell folks to say you know hey hey do not do not let your your animals near the stone you know like thinking of cranberry juice you know is, or is, is there anything like yeah that? yeah well certainly anything that would contain like this this artificial sweetener as we've talked about right. uh, in people's desserts or things that they could bring some some of these things are store-bought that people don't make them so they don't know what's in it mm-hmm. um and uh as a general rule of thumb i would just say don't give anything to them that you're, you don't know that they've had before and had no problem with and okay. even then grain grain of salt but uh, chocolate also notorious yeah uh, there there are very sick sick animals that from that and yet there's others who could eat a hershey's bar and it'd be an onion phase them you know so it's like we but in general the mm-hmm. warning is out there don't put your pet or yourself in this situation by exposing them to these things it's just not worth yeah, it. yeah. if they have a nice treat that they do like already Give them that. Give them, Give the them a frozen treat or something that they have. Yeah. Try to not go too heavy on those things if, if they're store-bought treats because even the best ones are junk. 
you know, yep. food in some level. Yeah. But hey, it's okay to have a cookie once in a while too for us. You right. Know? So just, right. Hey, you know, you want yeah. to say everything in moderation, but you know. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, uh, but sometimes. Uh, sometimes less than moderation there you go Dis- discretion the better part of valor as, as my high yes. school used to say all right all right good hey, yeah. uh thanks tom that, that's that's a, that's all the time we have out of that and that is uh well happy thanksgiving yeah. on that happy note yes, <laughs> you know definitely, definitely enjoy all of your food that you enjoy but don't give it to your animals if there you, you can go. help it Sound advice. All right. Well, listen, that is uh, that's the show for this week. I want to thank my guests, uh, Matt Zampa again. And we had uh, Christopher Barry and Ariel Flint. As always, we'd love to hear from you with your comments, ideas or suggestions. Or if you got a topic you'd like Dr. Picard to go into in a little more detail or uh, or a lot more detail, just check out theotheranimals.com. There's there's a link there on how you can get in touch with us. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook at uh, the other animals or the other animals dot one animals animal singular one and don't forget to check out our partner podcasters at iroarpod.com next show and i had to qualify that not next week because i won't be here next week but next show which will probably be in a couple weeks is it a bug or is it a bird we're going to be welcoming back one of our favorite guests uh, that's Cy montgomery remember we talked to her last year or so about the soul of an octopus well she's just published a really delightful new book entitled the hummingbird's gift wonder beauty and renewal on wings if you are as amazed and um and enchanted by these little these little guys I, and i just love watching hummers hummers is what they're called you're not going to want to miss miss our conversation so I, I hope you can join us then so until our next show uh have a have a great holiday and find a belly to rub we'll see you then <laughs>